0: It is that time to turn in your Bible to Lamentations chapter 3, so no embarrassment if you need to look at the table of contents to remember where that is. Lamentations chapter 3, rocking along in our verse-by-verse study of Lamentations. Uh, while you're turning there, just some quick background here, we, we are talking about a small little book of poetry, five chapters, arranged in a beautiful acrostic way, uh, uh, meaning each line follows successive letters of the alphabet in most of the chapters. And uh, this is a poem of grief and sorrow. Uh, It is occasioned by the most horrific, event in the life of the Israelites, second only maybe to the um, captivity in Egypt where the Israelites were enslaved, uh, and that is the Babylonian captivity. This happens uh, in the dawn of the 6th century B.C. Uh, We've seen going back into history, you remember under Solomon's rule and then uh, under the subsequent kings after him, the nation divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom in part because of their own disobedience and rejection of God. And then as God brought prophets into that time in history to call them back to the Lord and to a trust in Him alone, uh, the, the threat of if you don't do this was something called deportation. Or exile that God would choose to bring in foreign people to attack and to kill and to destroy even the nation of Israel and so that happened to the northern kingdom in the uh, end of the eighth century and then going into no yeah right and then um, and then going into uh, right around 600 uh, BC that happens again to the southern kingdom this kingdom of Judah the prophets are prophesying to turn away and repent Uh, they do not and so God brings in uh, the Babylonians who are the uh, superpower the 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 great nation of the day and through a series of three campaigns they eventually breach the walls in Jerusalem and uh, destroy people and property uh, carrying the best of the best back to Babylon think Daniel and his three friends uh, but destroying and killing many others. There were some that ended up staying and surviving, but it was a, a very difficult time. And as uh, Jeremiah the prophet, who had been called to preach to the people to repent, he's done so faithfully for over 40 years. Uh, his message has largely fallen on deaf ears. And so, uh, what God said he would do, he did. And uh, Jeremiah, in great sorrow and grief, writes a poem as he watches Jerusalem burn to the ground. Um, and it, you say, why is this in our Bibles? It's in our Bibles, obviously, for the historical value, right, that this actually happened, and, and this is a testimony to the severity of God's judgment and discipline of his people and, and how uh, essential it is that we worship him alone and trust him alone it's a reminder of that it's also as we've looked at it it, it it's a book that both illustrates and teaches us how to lament uh, lament is kind of a, a a fad in in churches today churches have fads believe it or not and, and you know where books and blogs kind of um, cluster around a theme and a lot of people are writing on lament um, what What's happening is uh, if we understand culturally that we, we've sort of bought in, we, we've drunk the cultural Kool-Aid of expressive individualism, this idea that expressing my emotion is not only valid and healthy, but if I'm not expressing how I feel, I'm not being true to myself and I'm denying some sort of authenticity of my being. We can talk about that another day. But what's happening is that that's now infiltrating the church to where people feel like if I don't express my feeling and express my emotion and just let it all out, that I'm somehow denying who I am truly. And that's that's morphing with this idea of lamenting. And so what you hear is just... Uh, you know, you can express, you ought to express anything and everything to God in whatever way you want to, so long as it's sincere. And uh, and like a lot of things, there's a lot of truth to that. God does want us to express ourselves to Him, and He does want us to cry out to Him in our day of trouble. And and, and it's not that we have to, you know, go put on our best clothes and and uh, you know try try to shape up for God before we go to Him. That that that's not that's not true either. Uh, but like a lot of things that that cultural fallacy called expressive individualism has uh, wrongly influenced how we think about grief and lament and the end result is a confused church so i think it's timely that we we talk about this and we're we're getting to look over the shoulders of the prophet here as he is lamenting and grieving and also as he uh, speaks for the people in another regard and then i think uh, there are many things about his example and what he says that are illustrative that we can learn from and ought to follow. So with all that in mind, let's come back to Lamentations chapter 3. And uh, we've looked at the this the section in the second part of chapter 3, starting in verses 19 down to about verse 33. We just looked at this the last couple of weeks, how God rescues us, in the throes of spiritual depression. We see Mr. Jeremiah in the first part of chapter 3. He's not in a good state of mind. He's been faithful. He's been loyal. He's uh, walked with the Lord. He's been uh, uh, obedient to his call. But uh, as you can imagine, in in the wake of all of this, uh, he has a moment where he really loses his bearing. and uh, And the focus of his heart and how he's interpreting things is skewed. And so uh, we see him in the throes of a deep grief and depression. And then we saw just in the last couple of weeks how God has rescued him, uh, remembering his character, being reminded of his nature. And, and these, uh, if you missed those weeks, uh, those uh, six points are there um, just to remind ourselves of where we've been and how God works in that. So we're going to build off of that today and look at the next section. And uh, so let's b- look back at the text, and we'll pick it up in verse 33. I'll read down there, and then we'll talk about where we're going. Verse 33 He does not, for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit. Of these things, the Lord does not approve. So interestingly, as. Looking at at the screen there, how does God rescue in depression? We saw back there in those early verses uh, how Jeremiah remembers the the never changing character of God, His faithfulness, His kindness, His mercy. We saw how the psalm or the psalm the poem turns and and Jeremiah starts talking to God instead of talking just about Him. That's a, a huge part of how God works. That uh, Jeremiah says, uh, "You're you're my portion, right? You're my prize. You're, you're the the best thing I have." He talks about seeking God and waiting for Him in a quiet heart, how how most of us don't do waiting very well, and yet Jeremiah says that's exactly what we need to do in a moment like this, is to wait on God and quiet our hearts. Uh, remember how uh, Jeremiah says three times there, the, the, the stanza that starts with G, uh, the word for good in Hebrew is G, it's good, 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 the Lord is good, it is good, it is good, and how... What God is doing is helping Jeremiah to redefine what's good for him. Often in grief, we're defining good on our own. And how God helps us is to remind us of what really is good and what really is best as we wait for him. Trust that God will honor his word even in hopeless circumstances. And think of God who does not afflict from the heart. As we come out of that, one of the things God's going to say to Jeremiah is, as the the city's burning, the temple's in shambles, people are dead everywhere, and and others are going back to Babylon. And and I'm sure Jeremiah is saying, what is going to become of this? And so looking back at the text, God reminds him that uh, nothing that is happening escapes the notice of God, and God will bring every act to justice. So he says here, Uh, In verse 33, he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. That's kind of where we left off last time. To crush under his feet all the prisoners, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man of his lawsuit. Of these things the Lord does not approve. So what what Jeremiah is is reminding himself of is that even though God is using these foreign peoples to destroy Israel and and take the life and, and all of that, that God's saying, just remember, that doesn't escape my notice. And justice will be done. In fact, it's interesting as you read the prophets and the historical books behind the prophets, God says, hey, I'm going to bring in this foreign people to discipline you. And then he says, and foreign people, uh, there's something, there's punishment coming to you because you're attacking my people. And we go, what is that all about? And it just reminds us of what we're going to look at today, that God can use the misguided and even sinful acts of people to accomplish his purposes. And uh, so what Jeremiah is reminding himself of here is simply that God does not approve of the injustice and the violence and the things that the Babylonians have just done, even though they were part of God's providential plan to discipline his people. So God sees and and God will act. And then... And then we get to uh, uh, what is arguably the center point of the book. This is, we've been climbing the mountain in Lamentations and this is the peak. The whole book kind of pivots on this little section we're going to look at today and uh, I'll show you more of the structure next time. But Jeremiah is going to ask three questions in our section today and these three questions are where the book of Lamentations has been moving toward. What do we think in grief and sorrow? What do we think about uh, the realities of what happened in the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of Jerusalem? And, and, and then by application, how should we be thinking when we go through seasons of grief also? And, and this is interesting because um, most of us don't think like this in grief, which is why it's, it's so needed for us as we find it in the, in the, um, the Bible today. So I want to talk to you about three questions to ask in grief. Now, these are questions. In fact, they, they, all, they all start with uh, Hebrew has a marker that you use. You know, we have a question mark that goes on the end of the sentence. In Hebrew, you start the sentence with a marker that says this is going to be a question. So they kind of let you know it's coming. <clears throat> and so it all starts. These are definitely questions. But these are what we might call rhetorical questions you guys know what a rhetorical question is it's it's an answer that really doesn't need an answer because it's obvious Uh, any parents understand this Um, you're not going to ignore that trash are you that's a question that's not really a question right if you ask that your son or daughter Uh, you're not going to leave your legos right there are you It's a question, but not a question, right? We all understand the the idea. So these are questions, but they're not really questions because the answer is obvious. And they function as statements. They function as reminders of truths that you and I need to remember when we are going through grief. So let's look at those questions here and then we'll, we'll take them apart together. Verse 37. Who is there who speaks... And it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. That's question number one. Here's question two. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? That's question two. Here's question three. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint... In view of his sins. Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. Let's just stop right there. Let's look at those three questions. I don't know how far we're going to get. These are important enough that we're gonna we're gonna walk through them slowly and, and we might have to come back next time, but let's let's just see how far we get. Okay. Here's question number one. Does anything happen apart from the Lord's command? Does anything happen apart from the Lord's command? In your grief, in my grief, in our sorrow, in heartache, in suffering, when you're struggling, you need to ask yourself this question. Does anything happen apart from God's command? Look back at the text. Who is there who speaks? And it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Um... So so let's just talk about this. Um, Who's he talking about when he says, "Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass"? Well, remember the the backstory in all this. Okay, for decades Babylon has been telling Israel, "We're coming for you. We're coming for you. We're coming for you. We're going to get you. We're going to take over." Right? And here we are, 586, 587 BC, and they've done it. They have done the impossible. Uh, The God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, the the one who has called out his people, and even the survival of the Jewish people at this point is something of a modern miracle, right? Their beautiful temple, their beautiful city, and all that that represented is destroyed. They said, we're going to destroy you, and they did. They were successful. And Jeremiah says, who is there that can speak and it actually comes to pass unless what? The Lord's commanded it. A reminder that anything, everything that happens, happens at the Lord's command. So we need to talk about two words here. You guys have heard these words. You probably know what they are. If you're new to Christianity, Christians say these things all the time. And if you're new, a new Christian, here's the thing you have to understand. Like any other industry, we have a vocabulary, and we don't always explain ourselves. So, so let's just remind ourselves of words we use all the time to make sure we're all on the same page, okay? First word, sovereignty. Sovereignty, and, and that, that's a word that we use in our culture and other realms, too. Sovereignty refers to god's kingly rule his lordship over all when we talk about the sovereignty of god when when the bible says the only sovereign the king of kings the lord of lords what it's saying is god is over all and there is nobody higher in authority than him that's sovereignty okay he's lord he's boss he's king he's in charge he's over everything now because of that role, and that, that speaks to his place, his role, his position, because of that, when he acts in light of his sovereignty, when he works out that sovereignty in all of life, we call that his providence. His providence. It's the working out of his sovereignty in all things. Because he's king, because he's lord, because he's boss and has all authority, he can do whatever he wants to do, right? Right? We read that in Psalm 115 this morning, right? Our God is in the heavens and what? He does whatever He pleases because He's God. He can do that. And when He chooses in His sovereignty to work out all things, to bring out His plan, to to work and act and oversee in every detail, every moment of, of life from the beginning of time, We call that his providence. Okay, are you with me? Sovereignty is his role. Providence is the carrying out of that role in how he governs and controls and ordains all things. Okay, so when we come back to this text, what Jeremiah is reminding reminding us through the, uh, the, the use of this question here is that God is sovereign over all and that his providence is the reason for everything that happens. Okay, are you with me? So it's his command, it's his sovereignty. And because he's thinking about it in terms of people that say, well, I'm going to go do this, and then they do it, right? They speak and it comes to pass. The Babylonians said, we're coming to get you, and they did. We recognize that that demonstrates God's sovereignty over people. Now, just let's just stop for a minute and, and think about this. Is it ever hard when you realize that um, you and I don't control other people. In fact, if we're honest, one of the greatest sources of grief and suffering is because we don't control other people. Uh, now there are stewardships, right? There, there, we, have, we have a role with other people. We, we we love them. We might give godly counsel. We, we might warn them when, when they're little. We have a responsibility to make sure they don't kill themselves. You know, when they're kids and whatnot. But but we recognize, even though we do have certain roles and certain jurisdictions, at the end of the day, we do not and we cannot actually control other people. And I don't know if you found this to be true. When I forget that and I try to control other people, bad things happen. Is that your uh, testimony also? And um, how do you you respond to the, the news that God is sovereign over people? I find that people have two very different reactions to that. The first reaction is, "That's not fair." That God controls everything. How's that? How's that fair? How's that right? How's that right? Um, and uh, and we fight against it. But God put this in our Bible not so that we could fight against it, reject it. But sovereignty over people is designed to be a comfort. If you can't control other people and you can't, well, isn't it great news that we don't have to? That we can rest and trust in the God who is sovereign over every person in your life. I mean, think about that. Um, That family member that doesn't want anything to do with you and you've tried... You've tried to make that right. You can rest in that God is sovereign over that. And you have a role to pray and to love and to do what you can. But you can't control that. But you can rest in the one who is. You know, that that child or parent, friend that rejects the gospel, you can't make them believe the gospel We have a role, right? We have a role to share the gospel, to be a good example, to pray, to appeal. We can't make it happen. But we can rest in the one who can. We can rest in the one who does all things well. Instead of fighting and and pushing and contriving and being frustrated and, and, and probably doing things when we force the issue that are not helpful... So so sovereignty is supposed to be a comfort. It's supposed to be a blessing that we rest in. Now, now here's what I found. Your response to sovereignty depends completely on who you believe God is and if you trust Him or not. Uh, I was reading a quote from a a famous... uh, famous, uh, He's a, a theologian from another era... And, and he talked about how we fight against, the, the reason we fight against sovereignty, that that arises out of a suspicion of God's heart. We fight the sovereignty of God because we're suspicious of His heart. Is He good? Is He wise? Do I, can I trust Him? And so when we think about this first question you know the, you know to to the israelites the, the the purpose of this is remember this hasn't happened by accident this has happened because god has ordained that it would happen god is sovereign over the babylonians doing what they've done right but we can rest and trust that because god is over it that he has a good and wise purpose even though it was a horrible event and I think our takeaway is are we willing to trust and rest that God is sovereign over the people of our life? And that's hard sometimes, isn't it? A lot of our grief happens because um, people have hurt us, people have rejected us, uh, people have misunderstood us, they, they've abused us, they, they, and worse. Can we come back and believe that God really is over everything? He's sovereign, especially over people. Well, there's another question Jeremiah wants us to ask in our grief. Here it is. Isn't it true that both good and hard times come from God? Isn't it good, isn't it true that both good and hard times come from God? This is hard because, again, I think... That somewhere along the way, as we learn Christianity, whether we grow up in the church or whether we, we come in later in life, we, we have this notion that when I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, God makes my life pleasant. Or maybe, just because I'm a Christian right now and I'm a part of God's family, that, that God is obligated to make my life easy and nice and fun and peaceful. And... Um, just be honest. Do we tend to do this when you get your way? Don't you say things like this? God is so good. He's so great. He's so gracious. And when you don't get your way, God is so good. He's so great. No, we don't do that, do we? But He is. And so there's this like major alignment that needs to, realignment that needs to happen in our heart that says, is God good and gracious and kind and, and wise? When I get what I want, yes, He is. But when our plans are thwarted or when He redirects our steps or when hard things, suffering things, difficult things, horrible things happen, God hasn't changed And this question is designed to ask us, do we really believe that both good things and hard things equally come from the wise, gracious, good hand of our Father? You know, I suppose if if we were to poll the three year olds this morning, um, they would probably have a similar theology. You know, when dad takes me to Dairy Queen, he's a good dad, right? When dad, you know, takes away, they wouldn't have an Xbox at three years old. Well, some kids might have an Xbox at three years old. I hope they don't. But, you know, when dad takes away my Xbox, when he uh, sends me to bed early, when he has to discipline me because I was naughty, I'm not prone to think of him as a good dad. In fact, I might think the opposite. I might think my dad doesn't love me, that he 's not good, that he 's out to get me or destroy me or right and um, and i 'm afraid to say this i don't mean this insulting, but <clears throat> i'll just i 'll just speak for myself. I am a spiritual toddler in my heart a lot of times. Because I do the same thing. Maybe you do too. Look back at the text, verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Doesn't it all come from God? On your notes here, uh, your Bible may say something a little bit different, and, and maybe you've heard messages or you have a footnote uh, in your Bible. We've got to talk about that little phrase, good and ill. Literally good and evil. And and we can trip over that if we don't understand what Jeremiah means and what he doesn't mean there. Um, what he doesn't mean, he's not talking about moral good and evil. The word can be used in both senses, moral evil or just bad things or calamity, we might say. And actually in the book of Lamentations, this word is used both ways. Um, when it's used in that back-to-back, um, there's a... A lot of languages do this. Uh, you use two, two terms like that to speak collectively. And what Jeremiah is saying is, doesn't everything that happened in life come from him? That's what he's saying. And he's saying good things and bad things, right? Pleasant things and catastrophic events. He's not talking about moral evil in the sense of saying God causes moral evil and sin. And I put a couple verses down here just, just, just to make sure that that's the right interpretation. There is no evil in God. God is not the author of evil. First John reminds us of that. Yeah, yeah, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Okay? Not even a little bit. And uh, James remind us, reminds us just a couple doors down that God cannot commit evil, and He does not tempt others to evil. There's no evil in him. He's not the source of moral evil. He can't commit evil. He doesn't tempt others to commit evil. Okay, that's the the consistent message of Scripture. So we can kind of relax and understand that's not what Jeremiah is saying here. He's using that little phrase, good and evil, or or better translated, good and calamity, pleasant times, catastrophic times. He's using that to talk about events, what happens in life, and says, is it not from the mouth of, of God that all those things come and, uh, and this reminds us um, I remember uh, go, going through Job and um, we know Job was not a, a perfect example by any stretch he, he was a, a normal struggling believer like you and I And uh, and there's that moment after the second round of affliction comes and he's got the boils all over his body. He's been banished out of the city. He's sitting on the trash heap. His friends have abandoned him. His family has abandoned him. And uh, his wife looks at him thinking he's going to die and she's going to be widowed and and, and likely uh, dealing with a life of, of destitution and probably prostitution. She says to him in her grief, just curse God and die. Just get this over with. I can't watch this anymore. And Job says something really insightful. Um, I, I think when he was still maintaining a, a godly perspective, he, he, he says this, and, and I, I don't know about you, I think we need to recite this every day. I really do. Because it's so counter... It's countercultural. cultural it, it seems counter-Christian. But it's not. Job says to his grieving, hurting... Wife, shall we receive good from God and not receive adversity? It's like, huh. You say, what's he getting at? Well, he doesn't elaborate, but, but maybe he meant something like this. If, it's, if both of those are from him and he is sovereign... And he is wise, and he is good, and he's full of grace and mercy. Remember, this is Jeremiah. This is on the heels in Jeremiah of the Lord's loving kindnesses, a dean never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, right? That, that's that's the running start Jeremiah has gotten to get to this peak. And like Jeremiah, Job says, "Shouldn't shouldn't we be ready to accept good from God?" Or shouldn't we be willing to accept adversity just as much as we accept good, right? Well, sh- shall we accept good and not accept adversity, he says. That's hard, isn't it? Just be honest, is that hard? Nod your head. That's hard. That's That's hard. And so what we have to do in those moments is, first of all, stop our natural reaction that says, this is horrible, this is bad, and say, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill... Come forth. This is. This is. My father's doing. This is. My father's will. This is the. Goodness. Grace. Of my heavenly father. That knows. Best for me. And like. Spiritual toddlers, we may not even be able to understand that. But in that moment, we need to trust our dad. That he knows what's best. So, yeah. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's 45-7 is the parallel to this. Yeah. Yeah. And Isaiah is more explicit there, but he's saying the same thing. Um, So so here's here's the challenge, guys. We can believe that God is good and nice and kind and loving when he gives us what we want. And that when we don't get our way, he's angry, he doesn't love us, we did something wrong. We, we, We can live like that. What Jeremiah is challenging us is to believe that both the good and hard things come from his good and gracious hand, and that um, and that we can trust him when that happens. You know, um, w- one of the hopes of the message of the Bible is that I can be okay. I can even thrive whether or not I get what I want. Whether or not my life is pleasant or hard. Um, My well-being does not depend on ideal circumstances. And and if you'll get that, if you'll, you'll think, pray, meditate, plead with God to let that govern your soul, it'll change your life. Because whatever my lot, God has taught me to say what? It is well with my soul. That, that, that's, that's not like I went to Disneyland and everything's great. That, that's, that's written by a man who's just lost most of his family. And he's saying God has taught me what this text is telling me is true. So think about that. Pray, pray that we would be a people whose spiritual well-being is less and less connected to ideal circumstances because we believe and trust our heavenly Father. That's question two. God is sovereign over our circumstances. That's our conclusion there. Uh, can I just ask you this what What hard thing are you going through? that you're tempted to believe that your heavenly Father is not over? He's God's sovereign over circumstances. Third question. Why should I complain when I suffer for my sin? Why should I complain when I suffer for my sin? Aren't these weird questions to ask in grief? Is that what your Hallmark greeting card says when you, you go buy one and give it to your... You know, who is there who speaks? And it comes. We don't talk like that. We don't think like that. We're afraid even to go there, aren't we? And it's true. We, we want to exercise wisdom and, and timing and, and grace in terms of when these questions and thoughts are appropriate when we're grieving. But we, we've got to ask ourselves. So here's the third question Jeremiah asks. Why are we complaining? Verse 39. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Don't we do that? Are you a complainer? We're all brothers and sisters here. We, We can ask honest questions, right? Do you complain? Um. Complaining, I think, is a struggle we all face. Why is he asking this? Well, there's two levels of this, okay? In the immediate context, why has all this calamity just happened? Because of Judah's sin. And the people are saying, what's going on? Why is this happening? This and that horrible things. And Jeremiah says, why? I love you. Why are you surprised? Why do we complain when we... So that, that's kind of the first level here. When I'm reaping what I've sown by, by experiencing the negative consequences of my own sin and then I complain about it? That doesn't make sense, does it? Jeremiah says, why should I complain when I suffer for my sin? But, but can I add a second level to that? I, I, don't, I don't think this is uh, what Jeremiah is particularly having in mind, but this is true biblically. So I'm going to add this because I I, I think it's helpful. How about this? Why do I complain when I'm experiencing suffering for any reason, whether I'm directly sinning and reaping the consequences or not, knowing that I deserve much worse because of my basic depravity? What did Job say again? Naked I came... From my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. It's all grace. (laughs) It's all grace. Um, What did Paul tell the Ephesians? We were by nature children deserving wrath. How many of you had wrath yesterday? This week? Last year, and I'm not. I'm not. I don't say that to downplay the hard things that many of you have gone through or gone through. But, but what I, I think the, the message of Scripture is: when we think about what we deserve, truly, and what God has given us in Christ, even though our life is not all you know daisies and desserts, um, we should not complain. It's interesting. Um, you want to do a, a fun Bible study sometime? Do a whole Bible study of complaining. A theology. You, you need a complain a c- complainology. Complain, <laughs> right? The study of complaining, right? Do a study of complaining. Really interesting. Uh, complaining clusters in a couple of books in the Bible. Uh, which, by the way, which book do you think complaining shows up the most in? Job. Yeah, that, that's that's. Uh, Second place. What's the first place? Yeah, Exodus and Numbers. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting? um, We'll we'll, uh, let me introduce this. Um, Turn in your Bible. Just hold your place there. Turn in your Bible with me to Exodus chapter sixteen. This is worth pulling the car over for a minute. I, I think this is something we could all work on. Um, so so here, here's the story, right? After 400 years, God brings the Israelites out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The ten plagues, Pharaoh and his army die in the in the uh, um, the Red Sea, and yeah, right. And we're going to the we're going to Sinai, we're going to the Promised Land, we're going to get the commands of God, right? And God says in Exodus 16. In the context, chapter 16, verse 2, then, this is on the way to Sinai, the whole congregation, the sons of Israel, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, would that we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pot of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out of this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Isn't it interesting in our complaining how we rewrite history how we interpret things according to our own wishes instead of to reality verse 4 then the Lord said to Moses behold I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day so that I may what does it say test them whether or not they will walk in my instructions. And the whole thing with the manna, that wasn't like God couldn't have brought in the grump's truck or, you know, the... Right? It was all about what? Will you trust me? And so what we see, and this is, I, I gave you some verses there if you want to start your study. Complaining often reveals a failed test of Trust. God says, this is a test. They still do that on the radio? The emergency broadcast system, this is a test. Deed, right? Do they, do they do that anymore? No one listens to the radio anymore. You guys are on Spotify. I know, I know. Um, right? God says, this is a test. It's a test of will, you'll tr- will you trust me? Because they're complaining, they're grumbling. God says, okay. And isn't it true that when you and I are complaining... It's because in some way we aren't trusting our Heavenly Father. You agree with that? Complaining is saying to God, I don't trust you. And that usually manifests itself in pushing back against His sovereignty. Do you see that? When I'm complaining, what I'm doing is I'm saying, I don't like how you're running the universe. So it, it, it's pushing back against God's plan. It, it's, it's, it's pushing back against His sovereignty, but it's also doing what? It's accusing God that He doesn't know what He's doing. It's accusing God that He doesn't know what's best. We know what's best. So in, in that in that common, seemingly innocent. I'm just in my car. No one's going to hear me. I'm just complaining in my heart. No one's going to hear me. In that seeming, normal, innocent exercise, we push back against God's sovereignty, we fail a test of trust, and we accuse God that He doesn't know what He's doing. Um, isn't it better to rest in and trust in and submit to our Heavenly Father who does all things well. You're going to be a much more pleasant person to be around if you live like that and don't complain. But much more seriously, um, to have a quiet heart to not react in anxiety and fear and over-control and anger and frustration when things don't go the way we want? Why? Because we know our Heavenly Father. We believe that He controls all things. We trust that His judgment and His character and His wisdom and His grace are sure and that His plans for us are for our good. That's a much better way to live, isn't it? So let's um let's put let's put a comma in our notes, and let's meditate and think and pray, and seek to live that out by God's glory this week. Okay, uh, Father, thanks for your Word. Uh, I we are so grateful that you are sovereign over all, and not just a ruler, but a Father, and that we can rest in your wisdom and your goodness and your ways. Uh, father, we confess a complaining spirit. We, we confess a complaining mouth. We confess that we often think we know better. Father, we confess that um, we accuse You in our complaining. We push back against Your plan. We we fight against the very things that You're doing for our benefit. So, so Father, help us to reflect and, and meditate and renew our hearts and minds in these things today. And when things don't go our way this week or this afternoon, would you help us to remember this is my Father directing my steps. I can trust Him. In Christ's name we pray.